Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Oncology. In this podcast, three experts discuss the key considerations for treatment selection and sequencing in patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. Lessons from real-life clinical practice. The discussion is guided by pre-canvassed questions provided by healthcare professionals involved in the management of patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Bristol Myers Squibb. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. Hello. We are discussing the key considerations for treatment selection and sequencing in patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. Lessons from real-life clinical practice. I'm Nikhil Munshi from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at the Harvard Medical School, and I'm joined by my two esteemed colleagues, Professor Sarah Holstein, Professor of Medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska, and Professor Nupur Rajay, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and director of the myeloma program at the Mass General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. We are discussing today three sections. First, navigating treatment decisions in patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma who have relapsed following one to three prior lines of therapy. Next, addressing the complexities of treatment choices in heavily pretreated patients with relapsed refractory myeloma following more than three prior lines of therapy. And finally, unraveling sequencing strategies for patients with relapsed refractory myeloma in early and later line settings. We start with the first segment, navigating treatment decisions in patients with relapsed refractory myeloma who have relapsed following one to three prior lines of therapy. And if we look at the current state of data, and, and there are a lot of them are discussed here, um, which, which are the studies where three drug regimens are compared with two drug regimens. And you can see that in each of these setting, the three drug regimen provides better overall response um, in the tune of 60 to 90%, higher PFS from 12 to almost 30 months, and significantly superior overall survival in the sum of the studies that have matured. So clearly, three drug regimens in relapse setting has become standard of care. And then when we select the regimen for these patients, number of factors go into our decision. There are disease-related characteristics, especially regarding the risk factors, the genetic alterations, and ISS staging system, Duration of the prior remission, whether the patient has extramedullary disease or circulating tumor cells, the patient's tumor burden, and then patient characteristic that includes end organ damage on one side, but also importantly, patient's age and the frailty of the patient. It includes performance status, comorbidities, bone marrow function and reserve, and various other patient preferences and patients' uh, choices that comes into the picture. But one factor that plays more significant role in our immediate decision is the patient's prior therapy. Whether the patient were exposed to immunomodulator, PI, or anti-CD38 antibody. And then the response to prior therapy, are they refractory resistant? 
and very importantly, do they have any toxicities which can impact what we select next? So it's a complex um, set of information that goes into the decision. And to simplify, I think we can go through the cases. So this is a case of a young 54-year-old male patient who had no comorbidities, performance status zero, bone marrow 50% involved with T1114 translocation. Patient was treated with three drug regimen, lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, followed by autologous transplant, got Revlimid maintenance, and then had remission for three years when eventually patient relapsed. And so this is the setting where we now will have to decide what would be the next treatment. And I would now go to my colleagues and I would ask Professor Holstein that at this point we have many choices. We have um, pomalidomide, we have carfilzomib, we have daratumumab and uh, other anti-CD38 antibodies. So can you discuss how, which one of these options have merits? Where do they stand in our selection process? Sure. So certainly I would discuss with the patient a combination that would include daratumumab or another anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. And then the question is, what do we partner it with? So as you just discussed, we do want to think about triplets because all of the various randomized studies have clearly shown benefits for triplets over doublets. But again, that key question is, what's the proper partner? And it's a bit patient dependent. In this particular case, the patient experienced disease progression only about 30 months or three years after starting maintenance. And that would be considered below what we would predict for a patient with no high risk cytogenetics. So in that context, I might not be as enthusiastic about a pomalidomide containing regimen just because I would wanna change uh, treatment modalities. So certainly partnering daratumumab with a proteasome inhibitor such as carfilzomib has a lot of data behind it with respect to the CANDOR study. But I would also note that this particular patient does have translocation 1114, so one could even discuss the potential of combining daratumumab with venetoclax and dexamethasone. So, uh, Nupur, um, when you look at these choices, and, and as uh, Sarah discussed, proteosome inhibitor versus uh, uh, using the antibody, how do you crystallize that in context of what the immediate response would be versus their long-term treatment, third, fourth, and fifth line? Do you take that into consideration when you decide? Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, I agree with what Sarah has just uh, talked about, Nikhil. I think it's really important to see this patient is clearly refractory to lenalidomide. So we are already dealing with a len refractory patient. Now, will you pick a PI over an image, a POM versus a PI? Um, you know, one can go either way. And that is where I do think a patient's um, uh, help in making that decision uh, makes a difference. One's an oral regimen with a CD38 monoclonal antibody. The other one is you're coming in, if you go by the either the IKEMA study or the CANDOR study, both are good options where we are picking a PI with an anti-CD38, but it's a little more involved where patients are coming in once a week uh, 
uh, three weeks in a row. So having that discussion, making the patient a part of that decision making and what works for them is uh, really what's important. As you pointed out early on, you know, this is the patient's first relapse, even though the patient, uh, uh, you know, had three years, as Sarah has pointed out, that's not typical. We want to see way beyond the three-year mark uh, now with these three drugs and transplant. Uh, so despite the fact that the patient has the 1114 translocation, you want to try and use the best possible treatment at that time. For me, what I look at is what is the best treatment for that patient and what is the factors, what are the factors in terms of coming to the hospital and so on and so forth. Young patient, if you look at the Candor data or the Ikema data, a PI with an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody would be a very reasonable option for this particular patient. So, Rambura, I have one more question. Do you think in this patient, the type of relapse might change your mind in what you might use? So, for example, if patient has an aggressive relapse, um, circulating tumor cells, or has a more indolent relapse, uh, do you pick treatment based on the type of relapse in this case? I think those are factors that you have to take into account, uh, Nikhil. Specifically, if a patient has, you know, you're worried about kind of end organ damage, you already have circulating tumor cells, I would pick um, something which is going to work very quickly, um, uh, a PI with uh, an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody would be something I would favor. There are other factors, you know, and we keep talking about patient-related factors and comorbidities. Uh, you have to make sure that the kidney function is okay and things like that. And based on those also, it'll help decide. So aggressive relapse obviously requires treatment which is going to work quickly versus an indolent sort of a biochemical relapse, which, you know, you have the tincture of time to try and get your disease under control. So I do think those factors play into decision making. So let's now look at the, a second case. Um, this is an older patient, a um, 70-year-old lady who has uh, some comorbidities. She has hypertension. She's evidence of renal insufficiency. Her performance status is one. Bone marrow was 60% involved and with T414 translocation. She was considered transplant not eligible, got treatment with botezomib, cytoxan, dex, um, considering renal insufficiency. Progress after eight months, had a second line with daratumumab, lenalidomide, dexamethasone and progress after 10 months. The question for us would be to decide what is the next line. So Nupur, do, uh, this patient being older with some other comorbidity, how would you factor frailty in making decision about the next line of treatment? Again, I think in the older patient population, Nikhil, looking at comorbidities is even more important. Having said that, you know, this patient does have high-risk features, right? The patient has 414 translocation. You've seen that the patient has already had two lines of treatment. And with those two lines of treatment, the remission duration of each of those two lines of treatment was pretty short. So you do want to give this patient effective, really effective treatment, but you want to balance the issue of 
of the chronic renal insufficiency which the patient has, as well as the fact that the patient has hypertension. So you would have to take all of those factors into account and come up with a treatment strategy which is going to be impactful, uh, get her into a good remission, and also uh, not impact her quality of life negatively. So frailty does play into how we pick treatment. Uh, We do fortunately have lots of options. I still think, you know, uh, a combination approach would be what I would uh, use in a patient such as this. And as you showed us earlier on, there's a lot of triplet combinations one can go to in this patient. A few things to think about. This patient is progressing on an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. Um, So you want to use a combination of a pomalidomide-containing combination, probably with a proteasome inhibitor. And she has options of using uh, a drug you know, one thing to think about is you can go back to some of the old drugs like bortezomib in this case because she had it for a very short time with bortezomib and cytoxan. And if you pick something like carfilzomib, I think you'll have to be very careful with her renal failure and high hypertension and really dose adjust that uh, while you give that to her. So, um, Sarah, now based on looking at frailty in this patient, and having just had two lines with limited number of treatments uh, or drugs utilized, do you need any more information to decide? And if you have all the information, what would be your next treatment? And there there are many choices, so it would be a personal preference to some extent, but it would be good to know what would you think should be the next line? So again, knowing a little bit more about comorbidities would be important. Is there persistent neuropathy from her prior bortezomib-based therapy that would preclude her from receiving that agent again? Um, How well controlled is her hypertension? Does she live independently? Is she able to get back and forth for weekly carfilzomib appointments, et cetera? But setting all of that aside, just from a pure disease perspective, I'm equally concerned Um, about how quickly her disease progressed on her first two lines of therapy and the fact that she does have a translocation 414. And so from that perspective, I would really try to get a carfilzomib polyamide dexamethasone-based regimen into her, um, making appropriate dose modifications, starting low with the carfilzomib dose, although frankly, regardless of frailty, you do need to start lower with carfilzomib in that particular combination based off of the available data really monitoring blood pressure, looking for signs of edema, any heart issues, et cetera. But at the end of the day, this is aggressive myeloma. And I think we need to try to offer the most active regimen possible, uh, but while also very carefully managing toxicities. Kim, thank you. So, So if we synthesize what you just said, both of you did, I think, we have many options in early relapse phase, many factors including disease, patient characteristics and prior therapy go into the algorithm of decision. And then finally, whether patient has relapsed on lanolidomide, for which we have lots of options as listed here, or they are not refractory to lanolidomide, in which case lanolidomide becomes one of the option in the series of options we can utilize, including daratumumab, isotuximab, elotuzumab, and few others. And so I think that algorithm becomes simple once we crystallize everything and bring all the patient and disease characteristics into our 
integrated approach that we take. So now if we go to the next scenario, which is to address the complexity of treatment choices in heavily predated patients with relapsed refractory myeloma following more than three lines of prior therapies. Now, there are again many choices even beyond the third line. So if patients had had three lines of treatment, then we would be looking at patients' earlier combinations utilized and what has not been utilized now, including the proteasome inhibitors, two of them, including immunomodulator, two of them, and then also two CD38 antibodies, other antibodies such as um, ilotuzumab, we can use cytoxin in different dosages, and then some of the other traditional drugs like bendamustine and others. And we can use combination of all of those, including a regimen like DSAP. On the other end, when patients have more than four or more treatment, then some of the newer treatment options become available. Includes CAR T cells, IDA cells, and SILTA cell, and the biospecific antibody, teclistimab. So we have to decide based on whether they are three lines or four or more lines, and then decide whether they are triple refractory or pentarefractory. So with that background, let's take the two cases that we just discussed and see what happened to them um, in their treatment um, history. So the first patient who was 49 year old, had one line treatment with RVD and transplant and R maintenance. He progresses, um, had some minor renal insufficiency with creatinine of 1.9. He had extra evidence of extramedullary disease. Performance status was one at that point. And at that point at age of 59, he had second line treatment with Dara PD. He had third line treatment with Phenetraclax, Bertezomib, and Dax. And he had a fourth line treatment with Carfilzomib, Cytoxin, and Dexamethasone. And then patient relapses at this point. So, Nupur, this patient has um, had four lines of treatment so far and relapsed. And so in the new world, um, what would you consider as possible option? Um, can we consider conventional combination further or novel intervention is what should be considered at this point? Yeah, you know, as I pointed out earlier, Nikhil, I think use your best uh, options whenever available. So I would favor using a novel intervention. We already have several novel interventions which are FDA approved now. We have two car products. Uh, we also have a bispecific. He's a young uh, patient. I would uh, strongly consider uh, something like an immune-based approach like CAR T-cells in this patient. He's had more than four lines of treatment and you want to try and give him the best possible chance of uh, good disease control and long-term disease control if possible. So Sarah, um, obviously the newer treatments are going to be important. They have a very high response rates and uh, we can go through some of it. But this young patient with the real type of relapse he has, he has gotten, um, would you consider CAR T-cell? Would you consider bispecific? How would you select those? So assuming that there was CAR T-cell availability, I would absolutely consider CAR T-cell as his next line of therapy. The data that we have so far, and again, it's pretty early on, 
in terms of having robust data, a lot of what we have are small studies or real world data, but even so, the data that we have so far would suggest that patients who previously had BCMA directed by specific antibody therapy have shorter durations of response when they then go on to CAR T cell therapy. So with that in mind and trying to get as much benefit out of the CAR T cell therapy as possible, I would go straight to CAR T and leave teclistimab or some other bispecific antibody as subsequent salvage therapy in the future. Um, the only times I might consider not proceeding with CAR T would be if the relapse was so aggressive that we simply couldn't find a way to control the disease long enough during the manufacturing time. Um, thankfully, these days that doesn't happen too often, but sometimes it is a reality, particularly if patient's disease is really exploding from an extramedullary perspective. And so sometimes there, it's simply not possible to wait three to five weeks for the cells to come back. But putting that aside, the data I think are the strongest so far for CAR T cell therapy in this line. Before we go into details about some of the toxicities and how to manage, how to select patient, let's go to the next patient first, and then we can have some more comprehensive question on this. So the second patient was the older lady who was 78, got two lines of treatment with VCD first and DARA-RDs next. Following the relapse, patient in between had a history of coronary artery disease, but ejection fraction is 50%, performance status is two, and patient received third line treatment with KPD and the fourth line treatment with KCD, with, with, with which she had quick progression in two months. So this is the patient's uh, scenario in history. And my question to you, Nupur, would be, how would you consider CAR T cell or biospecific in this patient, and uh, would you have preference for either of them um, uh, in this older lady with some comorbidities? Yeah, you know, I would absolutely consider an immunotherapeutic approach. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, the good news is we have both bispecific T-cell engagers and CAR T-cells. With her, the way her disease is progressing so quickly, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to wait on CAR T-cells with her age and her, uh, despite the fact that her cardiac function is fine, I would be more inclined to think about uh, uh, bispecific T-cell engager. Having said that, Nikhil, I have done CAR T cells in older patients also, and they do tend to tolerate that. And we've seen IDA cell data in older patients, but mostly because of the pace of her disease and for the reasons that we want to try and control it as effectively as possible, I would turn to an off-the-shelf bispecific T cell engager in this case. So Sarah, with this patient having 414 translocation in a reasonably aggressive disease, shorter PFS. Does that impact your decision between CAR-T versus bispecific in general? Uh, in this specific patient, you could mention as well, but in general, do you think that impacts? I don't know that we truly have enough data to be able to say that one is that one modality is preferable to the other for that specific cytogenetic abnormality or just high-risk disease in general. Certainly, High response rates have been observed with CAR T cell therapy, but relatively high rates have been observed as well when you look at subsets on studies with the bispecific therapies. 
I think it's more to what Newport just spoke to in terms of how rapidly is her disease progressing and do we have the ability to wait while cells are being manufactured or we need to start something immediately off the shelf that we can admit her the next day for teclistamab. Um, I think either way, she's predicted to have a shorter duration of response than a patient with standard risk disease, regardless of whether CAR T-cell therapy or a bispecific antibody is offered next. Thank you. So, so that brings one of the important questions for practicing oncologists, which is when they should refer the patient to us. So Nupur, you want to have some uh, views for our listeners that in practice, when would you like this patient to be referred to you and with what consideration? Yeah, no, you know, I think this is an incredibly important question. And we are talking about third, fourth, fifth line of treatment. In reality, what we see in practice is there's a lot of attrition of patients as they go from even second to third line. And I think we have to try and avoid that. I think what you've heard right now with some of the immunotherapeutic uh, uh, approaches, they're does require a little bit of planning uh, to occur. Specifically, if you're thinking about CAR T cells, you need to have the manufacturing time to four to six weeks. You can always have bridging therapy. So in my opinion, the earlier you refer to centers where you have the access to both CAR T cells and bispecifics is going to be critical uh, in the management of these patients. And that's going to allow us to plan for them to get what's best for them. So even after their second line of treatment, Nikhil, I would think about, uh, you know, uh, referring patients early because you talked earlier about lines of therapy, but you also kind of highlighted the fact of exposure. And what we've seen over the last several years is we are all using combinations. So at second relapse, most of our patients have been exposed to a lot of the drugs that are available to us. And that's why I think referring early is probably the best. Uh, it's in the best interest of the patient. So what I'm hearing is that patients should be referred early. They should be referred irrespective of renal function. We have all done patients with high renal function, high creatinine and renal dysfunction. And also age does not matter, as you said, but cardiac dysfunction also is not as critically important as we do it in transplant setting. So last thing, Nupur, on this issue is, would you want to comment on achieving MRD negativity with CAR-T or BITES and what does that mean to patients? Yeah, so, you know, again, we're seeing high response rates, uh, Nikhil, and the immediate MRD negativity, which you see with the cars, I'm not so sure that the immediate post one month or two months when we do a bone marrow uh, after CAR T cells where you start seeing completely an empty marrow is necessarily the right uh, thing. I think there's more and more data now uh, which is accumulating specifically in the CAR T cell space and also in the bispecific space where we're looking at more of a sustained MRD negativity. So if you see MRD negativity for six months, one year, that is meaningful and specific 
specifically with some of these treatments, the deeper your response is the, and the longer your MRD negativity is, the better the outcomes. So over time, I do think we're going to use these as uh, markers, prognostic markers. They might also help us with improvement in the duration of response in a subset of patients who don't get there. We're not quite there as yet, but I think just the one-off MRD negative is not good enough. We need to have at least a couple of tests showing sustained MRD negativity. Thank you. So now let's look at the next phase in this patient. And we discuss about unraveling the sequencing strategies for patients with relapsed refractory myeloma in the early line, but also more importantly, in the later line setting. If you look at what are the options available, we have 17 new drugs approved in myeloma in last 20 years. So we have a lot of choices. And if you look at the currently emerging other therapies, uh, more so in the, in the research setting, but they are going to become hopefully available commercially in near future as well, that includes antibody drug conjugates, um, belentemab and others. Number of other bispecific, not just targeting BCMA, but also targeting GPRC5D in FCRH5. We have CAR T-cells therapy against BCMA, but we have allogenic CAR T-cell, the CAR T-cells that can be quickly produced, CAR T-cell targeting GPRC5D as well. Then there are the newer immunomodulators, includes iberdamide and mesigdomide. And then there are a whole list of small molecules targeting various other novel targets. So we have a lot of options available in the space when patients relapsing after fifth line of treatment and beyond. And so the question comes up for our discussion is going to be, um, for the patients we discuss, both young and the old, when they relapse after CAR T-cell therapy, what can we do for those patients? And so let's say patients got either of the terms. So Nupur, any first thought on what could that treatment option be in the younger patient? So if the younger patient has gotten CAR T-cells and has relapsed, say, a year and a half out, remember, for a year and a half, they've been on no treatment at all. And that is a huge thing for patients with myeloma. So they haven't seen any anti-myeloma drugs for over a year and treating them. So life after CAR T-cells does exist and people actually respond to what they've been on before. The other thing I would really like to highlight based on your slide that you showed earlier, Nikhil, is there are so many other options. So we are looking at other targets. We're looking at FCRH5. We're looking at GPCR5D. And looking at alternate targets in these patients is important. We have data of bispecifics after CAR T cells that has shown some impact with the same targeting the same uh, uh, antigen. And we have data using a different antigen as well. So trying to get either on a clinical trial using some of the older drugs that we've used or using a different novel target in the setting of either CARs or bispecifics is something I would consider in patients post-relapse. So Sarah, that brings up a very important question from Nupur's comment, which is, can we or should we use another BCMA targeting treatment after a patient having received one treatment, whether it is by specific CAR-T or belentimab, can we use another BCMA targeting agent and um, um, how would you pick them? 
Yeah, so the data that we have so far absolutely shows that patients can achieve responses going from one BCMA-targeted therapy to the next. However, ultimately, whether there are better options, I think, remains to be determined, and we probably need clinical trials that will randomize patients, for example, to relapsing after BCMA CAR-T to another BCMA-directed therapy, such as a bispecific, and randomizing them to a GPRC5D bispecific or an FCRH5 bispecific or something else to really show that that switching targets ultimately leads to better long-term outcomes. But the data that we have so far from small subsets of studies that have specifically enrolled patients, for example, with teclistimab, where patients had previously received prior BCMA therapy, that cohort then responded to teclistimab with about half of them having a response. So it's clear that some patients can respond, but whether that's the optimal sequencing really still remains to be determined. Thank you. So, Nupur, then on the research side, um, there are multiple questions. The question about whether continued use of biospecific leads to T-cell exhaustion and or um, CAR T-cell at some point, um, their persistence is an issue. Um, and then final question comes up, can we use some immunostimulatory modulatory manipulations to increase the CAR-T function or bite function, et cetera. So do you have any thought of how would you sequence, uh, would you sequence something to improve immune function, to increase CAR-T uh, function, et cetera, or um, there are combination to be used in sequence? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's a really great question, Nikhil. And you know that all of us are working really hard on this. We know that we are seeing exceedingly high response rates with, for example, CAR T cells. We're seeing relatively high response rates with bispecifics as well. And what we want to do is try and improve upon the duration of response, right? And so there are ways of doing that. There is some early data with the CAR T's in the CAR T cell space where we're using immunomodulatory drugs. We've used lenalidomide, a post cell. There is new uh, clinical trials which are going to use some of the new cell mods that you highlighted, like uh, iberdamide and mesigdamide. And I do think some of these immunomodulatory drugs in combination post CAR T cells, and that goes back to your question on MRD as well. If you don't achieve MRD negativity, should you be augmenting the immune function with some of these? And I do think we should be thinking about that. Um, with the bispecifics, you know, there's already clinical data and some of the large registration trials are already incorporating the immunomodulatory drug with either teclistimab, for example, or with elronatumab uh, in combination. They're also combining it with the CD38 monoclonal antibody uh, to improve upon the response rates. So certainly we have work to do. I think getting these some of these drug products approved was step one. And now how best to utilize them in clinical practice is the focus of research for a lot of us right now. So Sarah, that also points uh, to a new question, which is CAR T cells works beautifully well, even as a sixth and fifth line treatment. So do you see them being coming up earlier on in the lines of treatment in newly diagnosed setting and uh, um, any highlights on where that those studies and that data might exist? Absolutely. I think we're all really excited about the potential to use CAR T-cell earlier. I think part of the problem that we're seeing when we're using it in such late line therapies is that we're working with 
T-cells that have been through a lot, a lot of different therapies um, and perhaps exhausted phenotypes. And perhaps if we can use it in earlier lines of therapy, we can get even more outstanding results and more durable results. We have published data so far from one of the phase three studies, which compared Ida cell to a variety of standard of care therapies uh, in patients with two to four prior lines of therapy. And that study was clearly positive with respect to PFS benefit for Ida cell. So it's hopeful that the label on that product might change in the near future. We also have some data that will be presented in an upcoming meeting for Silta cell, comparing it to standard of care regimens and again, earlier lines of therapy. And based off of the uh, top line results that have been reported so far, that looks very promising. So I think everything we've just talked about today in terms of how we sequence therapies could be completely shaken up if we are able to suddenly use CAR-T in the second line or third line. Um, so things are getting more and more complicated, and it goes back to something that you and Newport were discussing earlier, which is the importance of referring patients into the specialist, into the transplant or cellular therapy centers so that they can have up-to-date information about how to sequence all of these novel therapies. So, so that um, brings again a point, another point again, which is when do we refer the patients um, or when do the primary care oncologist would refer patients to specialized centers. Nupur, um, are there treatment that they should avoid while their patients are coming for CAR T cell for cell collection or other purposes? And, and or that's one part of the question. The second part is when we select this immunotherapy, do you see a sequence emerging that we should be utilizing to get optimal results? Ultimately, we want to cure these patients. Yeah, both excellent questions. And I'm so glad you asked me that because you had that slide and you had bendamustine on your slide. So I would say, you know, use alkylating agents carefully. We have data now, especially in the CAR T cell space, where if they've been heavily exposed to drugs like bendamustine, collecting those CAR T cells or collecting the lymphocytes to create CAR T cells can be a problem. And one of the things I think uh, we've all learned in myeloma is make sure you don't burn any bridges. Similarly, I would think about CAR T cells and uh, bispecifics. We have bispecifics which are available uh, to all uh, community oncologists, hematologists right now. The data that you see with sequencing just by the nature of how these drugs products were approved has more CAR T cells followed by bispecifics and not the converse. And if you think about how bispecifics are used, bispecifics are used continuously. So one can imagine that you're going to see continuous exhaustion of those T cells. And we have some early data to suggest that collecting T cells after they've been exposed to a bispecific can be a problem. So I think over there also, we need to do more studies in terms of sequencing, but just based on the rationale of how these drug products are used, my feeling would be CAR T cells first followed by the bispecific. Clearly we need more data. Okay, um, so I think this is a very robust discussion about um, um, whole spectrum of patient scenarios from early disease to um, late fifth, sixth, and seventh line treatment. I think um, the luxury we have in myeloma is that we have options for every line of the treatment uh, um, that we need to find one for patients. Um, the PFS is increased even for first line 
to around five to six years. Uh, overall survival is median more than 10 years. And so the whole myeloma spectrum has changed. Uh, we are almost on the cusp of cure. And so with that, uh, thank you so much uh, for this robust discussion and uh, giving insight into how to select treatments for relapsed refractory myeloma patients from early line to the late stages. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this and related topics on Touch Oncology at www.touchoncology.com. Mm-hmm.